you and glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you've got your Bibles this morning, if you haven't already, turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Uh, you'll see on your bulletin this morning, we're actually preaching the first of two or two parts to a message. This is actually, uh, we're going to spend two weeks and we're going to talk about prayer. And we're looking at the foundation for corporate prayer. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a very early story in the book of Acts. And we've already seen it in the book of Acts up to this point. We I've shared a few things from some of the earlier chapters in recent months, and if you know the book of Acts, then you know um, you know that, that this has been covered before. So what we're going to look at this morning is a crucial a moment in the life of the church and how they respond to it, and we're going to work towards the end where we see them praying, again, as they've already done many times before, but the circumstances are a little different. And then next week we're going to talk in more detail about prayer and what the Bible teaches about prayer. And then next Sunday, I'm going to give you your first 40 days of prayer guide for the whole church. Everybody will get a copy that wants one, and we will spend 40 days as a church together every day praying for the same thing each day for 40 days. This one will be a more general time of praying, uh, and I would say praying and fasting, but we haven't preached on fasting yet. We won't. Uh, we might try and work that in a little bit next week, but... Mostly we just want to focus on praying, and not just praying, but praying together for the same thing to create a spirit of unity even greater than we already have here at First Baptist Mableton. Does that make sense? Amen? And so that's what we're going to do. So that's where we are this morning. So Acts chapter 4, and uh, I want to read to you. Uh, we're going to read as we preach. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're going to cover the whole chapter. Again, I don't know if we'll get through it this morning. But we're going to cover the whole chapter between now and next Sunday. And hopefully this morning we'll get through all that we want to get through today just to lay the foundation for where we're going next week and give us, uh, and give us just enough this morning to hear from God what we need to hear from to get our hearts ready and moving forward in this area of prayer. Um, there are some things that we need to understand that, that have not changed in 2,000 years since Christ first came. And it's not going to change. There are going to be people in this world who do not like the concept of God, let alone the reality of God. And because of that, there are going to be people in this world who are not going to like us because we believe in the reality of God. And the struggle is going to be there, and it's going to be there until Jesus comes back, and those who don't believe in God find themselves face to face with the God they said never existed. And that's not going to change. And there are some fundamentals, there are some things that every church needs to know and needs to do and needs to be committed to if we're going to be the people that God wants us to be and be used by God the way that He wants to use us in this world. And one of my jobs, one of my responsibilities, and it's it's, it's, it's a little bit intimidating at times, is to remind all of us of the importance of unity and prayer in the kingdom of God and a commitment to being faithful to the principles found in Scripture. 
Because there are other churches that are in the situation that, that, that we're in right here, right now, and looking for a permanent senior pastor, waiting for God to bring the man that he's appointed and chosen. And they are looking for that man, and they're using all kinds of techniques and strategies to find that man that you can't find in the Word of God. And the Bible makes it clear for us what a church is, what a church looks like, and what we should be doing in this world. And we have to maintain a commitment to that, especially when opposition comes. And it will come. If you haven't experienced it yet, give it time. Amen. So with that in mind, we want to look at what happened to the disciples, the early church in the book of Acts here in Acts chapter 4, in one of the first and most significant events that happened. And everything was fine. We have the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, people getting saved. There's murmurings about things happening. Then previously in Acts chapter 3, you find Peter and John going to the temple, and they find the lame man asking for alms. And Peter in verse 6 of chapter 3 makes the great statement, Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That would have been okay if he had just said, rise up and walk. They would have said, hey, there's another prophet. We've got another healer in the land. But they said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And beloved, you can do a lot of great things in this world and you'll get applaud for it. But you do those same things and you attach the name of Jesus to it and suddenly you'll become an outcast and an enemy of a lot of people. But beloved, the only name by which we can and should be doing anything is in the name of Jesus Christ. So let's look at what we can learn from the disciples this morning. Let's, let's look at this. And there's five things I want us to see. And, and again, if we don't get through all five this morning, that's okay. Um, I had a preacher say one time, we, we're just, we're just going to go as far as we got. I had a preacher say one time, my sermons are like sausages. You can start at either end and cut them off anywhere in the middle. It's still good. Amen. I don't... I'm not quite sure what that means, but that's how I feel sometimes about my sermon. So we're going to jump right in in Acts chapter 4 and verse 1. And I want to read the first three or the first seven verses. And the first thing that I want us to notice this is the confrontation. This, this whole chapter is about a confrontation between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, the leaders of the day with the early disciples. So it starts with a confrontation. Look at verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 7. It says, As they spoke unto the people... The priests and the captain of the temples and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for now it was the evening. Albeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. And it came to pass on the morning that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? So that's the confrontation, and I want us to think about a couple of things, look at some different things under this confrontation. The first thing you need to be aware of is, who are the accusers in this confrontation? Well, in verse 1, we're told it's the priests, all right, and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, and that's important, the Sadducees came upon them. Who are the accusers? The accusers here are the Sadducees, and, and uh, 
uh, not just this, and, and, and throughout the history of the church, there's scribes, Pharisees, you know your different groups, but the Sadducees are the ones that are involved here. And the reason why this, this is important is because the Sadducees were the particular group in Jerusalem, the particular group in Israel, that did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. They did not believe in a physical bodily resurrection. They believed in more spiritual, eternal types of resurrections and the soul living forever to some degree, but they didn't believe in a physical bodily resurrection, which is why at one point, later on in the life of Peter, when he uh, finds himself in the middle of a confrontation between the scribes and the Pharisees, he makes reference to the resurrection. They start fighting with each other because the Pharisees believed in it and the Sadducees didn't, and, and he was able just to sort of just, just pull out of the equation because he got them arguing with each other. They didn't care about him anymore. And if you ever, by the way, and I heard a preacher say this one time, if you ever want to know which one of the two groups, the Pharisees or the Sadducees, if you ever get it confused which one didn't believe in the resurrection, it's real easy. You can remember that the Sadducees are the ones who don't believe in the resurrection. Because I heard a preacher say this one time, if you didn't believe in the resurrection, you'd be sad, you see, too. <laughs> Amen. So maybe that'll help you out. But these are the accusers. This is what's happening. And then number two, notice their attitude. In verse 2, it says, They were grieved that they taught the people and they preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So that's the issue. They're, they're preaching the resurrection from the dead. And they're preaching it through Jesus, who they're already talking about what happened to him. This is after the resurrection, after the day of Pentecost. There are still people who do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They're, they're still promoting the myth that, that his body was stolen or that he never even actually died. Uh, and so the, 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 the Sadducees have a problem with that. But notice at verse 2, they were being grieved that they taught the people. And they were being grieved that they taught the people, number one, about Jesus, and number two, about the resurrection, which they didn't believe in. They had a problem. They had a bad attitude because somebody else was teaching something that they didn't agree with. It didn't have anything to do with the merits of what they were teaching. The fact was, the Sadducees didn't believe in it, so anybody else who taught something contrary to what they believed, it bothered them. It grieved them. And beloved, you just count on this. When you and I, there are people who do not believe in Jesus, they do not believe in the resurrection, and they are so weak and so insecure in what they believe that when you and I believe something that is contrary to what they believe, they get mad at us. I'm going to tell you, beloved, you can get mad all you want. I'm not going to change my view on the resurrection. And I'm not going to change my view on Jesus. Amen? And that's what's happening in the world today. The largest conflict that we see in the world, the largest reason behind the conflicts that we see in this world today so people don't know how to have a conversation or a discussion anymore. They're so insecure in what they believe that their only response is to attack what somebody else believes. Can I tell you what an unbeliever knows deep down in his heart, whether they admit it or not? That they just might be wrong. That there is a God. And they want to fight that and resist that so much and so hard that when they see us believing with absolute confidence that there is a God, that the only response they know is to attack us for what we believe. And that's been happening for 2,000 years. Amen. So you have the accusers. You have this attitude. They were grieved. And, and by the way, you can preach it. You can, you can build a church. You can build a church in any community, in any town, and you can get people to come to that church, and you can use all kinds of methods, and you'll be praised and loved. But the moment the center of what you do in that church revolves around the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to have opposition. The moment you make the commitment to the name of Jesus, you're going to find people offended and upset. And then here's the third thing. 
of the accusers and their attitude, but look at the actions that they took. In verse 3 through 7, they laid hold on them, put them uh, they laid hands on them, put them in prison or in hold until the next day, for it was evening. And, and then it says that in the morning, in verse 5, they, they came together, and Annas and Caiaphas, who was the, the high priest, the high, Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, as many as were with them, they gathered together at Jerusalem. And in verse 7, when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now, that looks, that looks like a good question. It looks like they're trying to do the right thing, but clearly their motives were wrong. You see, somebody can ask a question on the outside that looks good, but inside the motives are wrong. They, they weren't trying to find out what these men really believed, what these early disciples really believed. They were trying to find out if these men really believed in Jesus because they had a problem with that. Amen? Sometimes people ask a question because they really want to know the answer. Other times they ask a question because they think they're trying to trap us. You ask me, I'm going to tell you why I believe in who I believe and what I believe in. Amen? But the reality is that, that, that there are people who will do things that looks like they're trying to find. And you remember the story of Herod? Remember when the wise men showed up? And they were looking for he, the child that was born, king of the Jews. And you remember what Herod said? Go and find the child so that when you find him, I can come and worship him too. Looks like it. Well, that sounds like a good thing. But we know from that story that his heart, the last thing on his mind was worshiping that child. But they're going to be people, and you're going to, you need to have the discernment to recognize those people in your life and mine who, who look like they're asking the right questions, but their motives aren't in the right place. And so that's how this whole chapter starts, with this confrontation with the accusers, the bad attitude, taking the wrong actions. By the way, if you, one way to know that if somebody's serious about really wanting to have a conversation with you about Christ or not and really want to know the things of truth, it's pretty much a given that if they throw you in jail before they have the conversation, there's something going on. Amen? And so that's what happened here. So now, let's look at the second thing this morning. Not just the confrontation, but look at the compulsion. I want you to think about the compelling uh, response or the compulsion of the disciples. Look at verse 8, and we'll read down to verse 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said unto them, Ye rulers and the people, or ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the lame man by what means he is made whole, he knew, he knew what happened, he knew what he did outside the temple, he knew why all this started. He says, if this is what's caused all this, if this is really why we're here, and you're examining us because of that, and you're asked by what method you want to know, then I'm going to give you an answer. Verse 10, be it known unto all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set aside by the builders which has become the head of the corner or the chief cornerstone. And then he says in verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. See, when the confrontation came, 
Peter gave an answer, and Peter was compelled to answer a certain way. There was a compulsion. There was something that was driving him, and we're told that in verse 8 when the passage starts. The Bible says that Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Beloved, if you and I are not filled with the Holy Spirit, if we are not walking with God the way we need to be walking with God, we cannot give the world the answer that God wants us to give. We cannot give them the answer that they need, and we will answer them as much in our flesh as they are in theirs, and that doesn't get anybody anywhere. Beloved, you have got to know, and I have got to know, that when we live and walk and move and breathe in this world, that everything we're doing, we're doing under the compulsion of the Holy Spirit. That we are being led by God. Not by culture, not by human reason, not by anything other than the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And so Peter answered, and he answered two ways. Number one, he answered filled with the Holy Spirit. He answered filled with the Holy Spirit. And then number two, he answered fully. He answered filled and he answered fully. So what do you mean by that, Pastor? I'll tell you what I mean by that. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't give him a half an answer. He gave him the whole load. Amen? I mean, he told him exactly. Let me do You want to know? I'm going to tell you. This goes back to that man that was healed the other day. I'm going to tell you exactly. You want an answer? I'm going to give you the exact answer. Number one, we did it in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. By the way, that same Jesus that you crucified, that you rejected, I want you to know that it's by his name and only by his name we do this, that he is the chief cornerstone, that he is the foundation of all Israel, that he is the promised Messiah that you rejected, that you crucified. I want you you to know that we do it in his name and that his name is the only name whereby man must be saved <laughs> and everybody said okay and walked off no that's not how that story ends no we're going to see what happens in just a moment beloved if you and I are not filled with the Holy Spirit if we cannot be that committed to Christ then we won't be prepared for what comes next amen and, and, and you just need to understand, there's going to be confrontation in this world, but you need to have the compulsion of the Holy Spirit. And so then look at the third thing this morning. In verse 13, we'll read down to verse 22. I want you to look at the command. We have a confrontation. We have a compulsion. Now let's look at the command. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Can I just throw this in? This isn't in my notes. Can I just stop and preach a mini-sermon? <laughs> we need some bold Christianity today. We don't need this weak, self-centered, selfish, shallow Christianity that we see too much of where we're afraid we're going to offend somebody. Just count on it. If you're faithful to Christ, you're going to offend someone. There's a difference between offending somebody on purpose and offending somebody just because you're being faithful to Christ. Amen? That being said, as I told you last week, I, I, I now, I've reached a point where I, I, I do sometimes offend on purpose. I want to make sure that they know that everything that I believe has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, and they need to be evaluating that in their life. But what happens here is they, they had boldness, and they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Well, isn't that convenient? It says they marveled, and then look at this. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Whatever you do in this world, however you live, however we respond to this world, the one thing that people ought to say about us more than anything when they look at our lives, they ought to take note of the fact that we walk with Jesus. And when people go, 
You're walking with Jesus. That's one of those people that walks with Jesus. We don't need to hold our head down. We don't need to be ashamed. Well, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm sorry. If the, we need to hold our head high and go, praise the Lord. If they see it, that means I'm doing it right. That means I'm walking with God the way I need to. Because you can tell somebody you're walking with God all you want. They're going to look at they can look at our lives. They can tell us real fast whether or not we are. Amen. And so they had boldness, and they perceived that the boldness came from the fact not that they were learned men, not that they went to college, not that they were scribes and Pharisees and leaders. No, their knowledge and their power and their authority came from the fact that they had been with Jesus. Verse 14, beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, they couldn't say anything against it. Well, what are you going to say? What are you going to do when, there's, when, when the man who couldn't walk yesterday, who today is standing right there in the middle of a big smile on his face? Does the Bible say that? No, but I don't think he was frowning. I'm fairly confident that he who could not walk and now is able to walk and stand was standing there in the midst and watching all this and just thinking, man, this is funny. Uh, did they not get the fact that yesterday I couldn't walk, but now I can? Why is this a problem? Well, the problem is because they did it in Jesus' name. Amen. That's the offense of this world today, beloved. Verse 14, they beheld the man, they couldn't say anything, they couldn't argue with him. They couldn't, what are you going to say? Anything they say at that point makes them look bad. So verse 15, when they had commanded them to go aside, out of the council, they conferred among themselves. Make a note of that. You guys step out, we need to have a conversation. Huh. Don't you love it when leaders meet behind closed doors? That always turns out well, right? All right. <laughs> Verse 16, saying, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth no, uh, to no man in this name. Not that they don't speak to anybody, but that they don't speak in the name of Jesus. And they called them back in. And they commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you, more than God, you be the judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, love how that went right over their heads, right? Um, if we're supposed to obey you and not God, I'll let you tell us the answer to that one. And what was their response? That's a good point. We need to think about this. No, their response was, let's just threaten them even more. We don't want to ask the question about whether or not there's truth in what is happening here. We just don't like it because we don't understand it and we don't agree with it. Welcome to 2020 in the USA. Amen. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed and it won't. And the Bible says... <laughs> They further threatened them, then they let them go, finding no way how they might punish them because of the people. They knew if they put them back in jail, if they did anything else to them, the people would turn on them. They would lose popularity. That was the last thing they wanted to do. 
It says, for all the men glorified God for that which was done. And then verse 22, for the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was shown. In other words, he was a fully grown adult male in the nation of Israel, which meant that in a court of law, his testimony was binding. So they knew that if they were pressed and if they put it in front of all the people and it would come to some sort of a trial, that the man who had been healed, being a legal, lawful adult male in the nation of Jerusalem, standing up in court before the Sanhedrin, before the priests, before all the people, and testifying what God had done and testifying that it was God who did it and testifying that it was done in the name of Jesus Christ, they could not do anything to to him or they would lose all their credibility. So they simply let them go. They knew they'd lost. But I want you to notice two things about the command that they gave. Two things about this this situation. They commanded them to go and don't preach in his name anymore. They kept threatening them. So two things. Number one, there were no grounds to their command. Verse 14, the man was standing right there. They couldn't say anything against him. Verse 22, the man was over 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing was shown. You know the biggest testimony that you have, beloved, for a life for Christ in this world, it's, 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 it's when the world looks at us, and they can talk about what we say, and they can disagree with what we say, but when they look at the fruit of the life that's lived for God, you can't argue with the fruit. You can't argue with the results. When a church commits to Jesus Christ and the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, and He begins to change lives so that that woman who used to sell herself in the night no longer does so, that that man who used to be addicted to drugs is no longer addicted to drugs, that person that used to be a hateful, foul-mouthed individual and now speaks only words of love and grace and compassion, and when you look at those people who used to be enslaved to all manner of sins, now the chains are off and they're free and they are no longer bound, and they tell you that the reason they are free and no longer bound is because the power and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ You can't argue with that. They had no grounds. And not only that, they had no guts. (laughs) And beloved, you can just count on it. As I said at the start of the message this morning, the biggest problem we have in this world today is that people are so insecure in what they believe that the only way they can get around that is by attacking what you and I believe. No guts. That's why they put them out of the room. So you guys go outside. We need to talk. And in that conversation, clearly, their motive was not, let's see what God. They're the leaders of Israel. They're the spiritual leaders of Israel. At no point do they ask the question, what would God have us do here? No guts. No grounds. Well, here's the fourth thing this morning. And this is where we get into the meat of where we're going this week and next week. I want you to notice the commitment of the disciples. We've seen the confrontation, we've seen the compulsion and the command that's now given, but look at the commitment of the disciples. Look at verse 23. And and, and, and number four, number five, the last two things we're going to look at, and I think we'll get through it this morning. Now you're beginning to see where prayer comes in to this situation. Because how do we respond? When we're living the way we're supposed to live, we're we're, we're proclaiming the name of Jesus. Everything we're doing is in his name, and people are still hateful and spiteful and trying to silence us and stop us from being faithful to Christ. How do we respond? Well, how did the disciples respond? Look at verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, You are God, which has made heaven and earth. 
and the sea and all that is in, who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? They're quoting Psalm 2 here. They knew their Bible better than the religious leaders of that day. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth, against your holy child Jesus, whom you have anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. More boldness than you've already got? Are you serious? That's exactly what they're praying for here. God, we pray that now in the midst of all this, you give us even more power, more boldness, more courage, more conviction, more faith than we had that even led to the start of this. By the way, do you realize what they're asking for? I think they knew what they were praying. I think they knew that if they had that boldness they'd already had and they'd already been arrested and tried once, that by praying and asking for more boldness, I'm pretty sure they understood they were going to get in more trouble. But that's the key, beloved, right there. In your prayer life and mine, are we asking God to give us the kind of boldness and authority that we need in this world to be the witnesses that he needs us to be, even if it means the world's going to hate us even more? When you can answer that question, not only will your prayer life change, but so will your witness for Christ. Their commitment, beloved, was to two things. In fact, I need to read verse 30. It says, by stretching forth your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. <laughs> their commitment was to two things. Number one, to the sovereignty of God. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your counsel determined before. In this passage, they quoted Psalm 2. And they said that these are the people who crucified Jesus. But do you realize what they're saying in verse 28? They're saying in verse 28 that the reason that they were able to crucify Jesus is because the sovereign God allowed it. The only reason they were able to put him on that cross is because God had ordained it as necessary to secure the salvation of men as much as they hated him, as much as they disagreed with him, as much as they were accountable for their own sins and their own actions, and as much as they're not going to be able to stand before God one day and say, well, we didn't really crucify him, it was you. Know that God's going to look at them and say, you're the one who gave the order, you're the one who drove the nails, you're the one who cheered it on, you were instrumental in it, but the only reason it happened is because I allowed it to happen because I knew that if it didn't happen, no one would ever have hope no one could ever have salvation God said I allowed it to happen because I am God and you are not amen if you haven't never seen the poster before I've seen two different versions of it the first one it says there are only two rules for life rule number one there is a God rule number two you are not him and another one that I saw that was sim similar, it said, rule number one, God is always right. Rule number two, if God is wrong, see rule number one. <laughs> and that's what these disciples were saying. 
But in the midst of not only Christ's crucifixion, but the fact that they'd already been thrown in jail and the fact that they knew that if they remained faithful to him, they would face that and maybe even worse. And you know the book of Acts. Many of them did. Peter would later be crucified, put to death. Paul, put to death. The early disciples, many of them, would be hunted down and executed for their faith in Jesus by these same leaders. But they had a commitment to the sovereignty of God. And then number two, they had a commitment, and this is important, they had a commitment to the service of God. Verse 29, look at it again. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the holy child Jesus. We don't stop feeding the hungry in Jesus' name because the world tells us to. We're not going to stop clothing the homeless in our community because, in Jesus' name because the world tells us to. And beloved, you can count on it. You can feed people and you can give them shelter and you can do all these things for them. As long as you don't do it in the name of Jesus, you'll be a hero. But you put Jesus' name on it and all of a sudden we're an outcast. But that's the only reason we do anything. I said it before. I'm going to say it again because I want to make sure we get that this morning. Amen. You have to have a commitment, beloved, to, to let the people know. The only reason you and I are good people, the way the Bible measures good people, is because Christ has made us good people. And, and we need the world to know that the reason why that man, that woman, that used to be bound in sin is no longer bound in sin is because of Christ. Say, preacher, didn't you just say that? Yep, I'm saying it again. We'll make sure we get it. Amen. It is Jesus who changes lives. And, and, and this is beautiful. It is Jesus who changes lives and keeps their lives changed. The world can't do that. Human reasoning can't do that. Only Christ can make a change that is eternal. Amen? And so they had a commitment. And here's the fifth thing. Here's the conclusion. Don't you like that word, amen? They all start with C, confrontation, compulsion, okay? The commitment we've seen, but now look at the conclusion of the matter. And I'm going to give you two things, and this is going to lay the foundation for where we're going next week. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. Sound familiar? Already happened back in Acts chapter 2. And they were all... Filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. Now, I'm going to hit this quickly and run, Lord willing. I'm not going to get stuck here. I'm going to give you this nugget, and I'm going to challenge you to do this in your daily Bible study, in your quiet times with God, the times that you spend in the Word of God. If you don't do it daily as often as you do it, amen. I want you to look for the times in the body of Christ, in the church of Christ, in the life of the church, when the, when the Bible uses plural pronouns when the bible refers to the times that that we are recognized as working together they us we all look for those times amen those are as important if not more important as the times when it says i me you amen there are those passages that are important for you as an individual, but I'm convinced, and the more I study the Bible, the more I see overwhelmingly in the New Testament this unity, this plurality, this idea that the body of Christ, that all of us are one body, but we are one in unity collectively, all of us. Amen. 
And so it says that they were all filled and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Not just Peter. Not just the disciples. They all spoke with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that's what started the whole thing with the Sadducees. They didn't back down. No, they prayed for great boldness and they got great boldness. And with great boldness came great power. And with great power, they preached more than ever the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The tomb is empty. And great grace. I love that. Great power and great grace was upon them all. And beloved, count on it. If you pray for boldness and God gives you the great power that you need to be the witness that he wants you to be, he will also give you the great grace to go along with it. Hallelujah. See, our problem is we get great power and great boldness and we become great, arrogant little rascals. Amen. With great boldness often comes great pride, but no, when it comes from God, when it comes from God, with great boldness and great power comes great grace. And with great grace comes great humility. That's good, amen? That just came to me. That's not in my notes. I'm going to preach another sermon. Can I come? No, I'm not going to do that. No. Boy, if we don't get anything else this morning, we need to get that. At no point in this passage, at no point in this passage, were any of the disciples arrogant or full of themselves. They were humble. And they were full of Christ. Amen. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold. And they laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostle was surnamed Barnabas, which being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what is the conclusion of the matter? If if their commitment was prayer, then what is the conclusion? The conclusion is answered prayer. They prayed for boldness and God gave it to them. But not in that boldness and in that and in, in everything they prayed for, God gave them a unity. And there's two things. I'll give these to you quickly. In verse 31, he gave them a oneness. A oneness. They were all filled. They all spoke. They had all things common. Verse 32. He gave them a oneness. And then in verse 33, he gave them a witness. Great power gave the apostles witness. And great grace was upon them all. The conclusion of the matter is that even after they went through all this, the church was not divided. The church was not threatened. The church was not weakened. The church was stronger than ever. Because the church, that early church, never lost their confidence and their faith in a sovereign God and in the power of Christ to change a person's life. And that was the heart of their prayer life as this story comes to a conclusion and we move into chapter 5 which we're not going to preach on which is a horribly tragic chapter because right after that happens you have two people who threaten the unity of the body of Christ 
The story of Ananias and Sapphira who lie to the early church and God strikes both of them dead. Well, that's a sermon for another time. <laughs> Amen. Or I could preach it now if you want. It's a symphony. <laughs> I'll wait. Uh, I want to close with this. We didn't cover this this morning. In Acts, in Acts chapter 1, the Bible says that the, the book of Acts, when Luke wrote the book of Acts, he wrote it for all that Jesus began to do and teach in the book of Luke. When Luke wrote the book of Luke, it was all that Jesus began to do and teach. What we're reading here in the book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do now through his disciples. And so I want to close with this thought. And because I want you to believe me when I say I close with this thought. God is still at work in the world today as much as he was when Jesus walked upon this earth 2,000 years ago. But the work that he now does, he does it through us. It's not over. In fact, I would say after 2,000 years, we're really still just beginning. Because for those of you that come to church on Wednesday nights, for those of you here for the Bible study that we're doing with David Platt on Something Needs to Change, the question he asked is, why after 2,000 years are there still people in the world who haven't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Beloved, we have a work to do, and that work is going to take boldness. And as you move forward in the next three, four, five months, as we finish this process, and as we seek God's will, and as you seek God's man, you have got to have a commitment to prayer, and you have got to have a commitment to boldness, because God wants to do something great in this church. He wants to send a man who will lead you so that all of you can work together to do even greater things and greater works than was done 2,000 years ago when Christ walked the earth. He wants to continue, and he wants to continue through you and 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 me and everyone here. Amen. And that's going to take boldness, and that's going to take prayer. And when it comes, God will bind this church together like this church has never been bound together before. That's in the Bible. Amen. We'll talk more about that next week. For now, let's pray. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?